Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. My first test, um, and I bowled the first day, I think, and got none for or one for uh, 70 or something. And I thought, oh, this is it. I was about the seventh or eighth fast bowler tried that season against them. So okay. you know, I was a, a real overnight success. Um, <laughs> but I was only young. Um, and the thing is that in the second innings, I came out and the outswinger worked beautifully and I, t- I end up taking five for 80 or something. And though I didn't, it's almost like the, the attitude of a few of the senior players almost changed overnight. And, and it seemed to me that maybe I was a little bit accepted here and, and I felt a little, not comfortable, but I felt gee, I can do okay. You know, I got five for against England, like England. Um, <laughs> and so that confidence that I got from that and the acceptance, um, I think was a turning point, no doubt about that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and today we're joined by the finest fast bowler of his generation and one of the greatest the world has ever seen. He literally put attack in bowling attack and quite literally needs no introduction. Dennis Silly, welcome to my show. What a pleasure. (laughs) Like many in Australia and around the world, when I was a kid growing up in the backyard, coming off the back fence, I was Dennis Silly. Steaming in, I couldn't grow a moustache back then, but in my mind I had one. (laughs) Come on, come on Aussie, come on was ringing in my ears. And I had your action down pat. <laughs> Have you always been aware of the impact that you had on a younger generation? No, not really. Um, in fact, probably not at all, um, particularly early. You didn't think about it. I mean, um, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't sort of um, as pushed as it is today or not so much pushed as exposed is a better word, mm, yeah. um, as you know, then I mean, you're you're a park cricketer. You played club cricket. You, you know, if you're lucky enough, you got invited to play to WA. Invited <laughs> to play, you have to accept yeah. the invitation. Yeah, at seven bucks a day, um, <laughs> and uh, then you. So you hardly 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 going to get rich. So it was just you're playing cricket. You know. Yeah. You paid your subs at the club. <laughs> um, annual subs, um, yep. and you bought bought your own gear. You know, you know so it was sort of <laughs> it was basic amateur sport, and mm. uh, and it was lovely. Um, but yeah, no impact. <laughs> no one thought about impact. Uh, I mean, it was just uh, I, I guess like most of uh, the young lads in those days, you looked up the paper the next day if you had a good day to see if you know they wrote in there. Your name might have got mentioned, Lily, five for thirty or five for sixty or whatever, yep. and that was that was sort of the excitement for the weekend, you know. Um, so yeah, no, no, no thought of any influence in, uh, in the early days, and even playing for WA. But I think mm. once you started getting established, mm. um, you knew that you knew then that um, people were responding differently to you. Um, and I don't sh- think that I liked it that much, but but you knew it was there. I f- found it almost quite, in, in a way, embarrassing because um, no one taught you anything about it. You, you didn't have lessons on how to handle public or handle fans or whatever. So it it was it was very different. Um, 
it was almost uh, everyone was quite naive, I guess, in those days, which was kind of nice. What's incredible to to think, well, to to hear that because there's no question the impact that it had on me as a, as a young kid, and and that was I was doing that in the backyard when like after you'd retired. Um, but just because of, you know, everyone knew about you and the footage that you'd that I'd see on TV, the highlights, but also knowing the impact, you know, that you had on my, like my dad, for example, who like he loved watching you. And then talking to people over the last sort of 20 years or so, there's so many of the generation, like my dad's generation, whether it's male or female, who loved watching your era of playing primarily because of you because of the way you played, because of just everything that you did on, on and off the field, the characters, um, the character that you were. It's, it's well, actually don't blame me. I think you can, <laughs> you can blame, probably blame me and Chapel and Rod Marshall, those <laughs> Americans, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, no. uh, yeah, it was, it was a, look, I think, I think it, was a, it, it was deemed an exciting era because hmm. we really did come out of the doldrums. The f- sort of 50s and 60s was dull, boring. Cricket. I'm sorry, some of my mates played in that era, but yeah, it was it was really quite dull and boring compared to Ian Chappell's attitude, which was basically win the toss, bat first, get 300 plus in a day. If you haven't quite got that, then the next day you just bat for half an hour. I'm only going to give you half an hour, maybe an hour max. Uh, then we bowl, um, and that's the only way we're going to. Well, that's the best way of winning a game, you know. So, in other words, up tempo the game a bit. Um, and he was successful in doing that, and, and a lot followed. So that was Ian Chappell's foresight on how to on. I on reckon, take yeah, the game yeah. I mean, wow. well, it wasn't wasn't Bill Laurie's? Let me tell you, he was a captain <laughs> before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. <laughs> People with foresight, it's yeah, incredible. So, and now, you know, he. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure he learned a bit of that from a guy called Les Favell, who mm. was, you know, that sort of same cavalier player. Mm. Um, that that he played under, um, but you know Ian was his own man. Um, we all learn from others, don't we? So, yeah. um, but he was in the end, he was his own man. As well as just mimicking you in the backyard, I have well have been crazily fortunate to for you to be my bowling mentor. Really, since I was the age of eighteen, um, I was so lucky. Thanks to Basil Sellers providing the scholarship to have had two weeks with you at the MRF Pace Foundation in Chennai which had a huge impact on my bowling development to spend two weeks with you eating, breathing cricket and, and bowling in particular. And then I had my stress fracture in my back when I was 23 and you were the man who really helped me technically to be able to get back into you know, being bowling as having the next you know, four or five years, some of the best bowl or the best bowling of my career. And I'm so grateful for you giving me the time and also your incredible or expertise and insights into bowling. So I am so grateful. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, well, just, just getting back to that, um, you know, the MRF, and, and I'm glad you said that because I think MRF's legacy is going to be probably uh, known more later on than, than now, um, not just for uh, helping find and, and nurture and, and show young lads how to get fit and strong and bowl fast. Mm. But the fact that um, I, I in one of my meetings with them, said, look, this is fine, but um, I'm getting offers to go and coach everywhere else, which mm. I was. And I couldn't – I said, I can't possibly do it. Uh, I'd like to. But one way we can do it is to – to actually bring them here, you know, hmm. let them come here. And so I approached Rod Marsh and uh, Rod was running the academy, which you were part of, and hmm. Rod Rod then um, decided that uh, he'd like to do that, but they've got no funds. In then comes my mate Basil Sellers, who's your mate too, he's a great mm-hmm. bloke. And Basil, um, Basil just said, Hip, yep, I'll fund it for the academy. <laughs> and then the same thing happened with all the academies uh, basically around the world. And, uh, you know, we had every nation came there um, and, and bought their fast bowlers and a lot of them bought their batsmen and everything just so that they could learn there but also also the opportunity to play in, in, in Indian conditions before they reached test status, which was it's a lovely, uh, it's a lovely involvement, uh, from, really for, from all the nations, but also from MRF to allow that to happen. Absolutely, because I remember, like in the mornings, were were fitness work, and in the afternoon was just like cricket heaven. 
it was bowling with you at the top of mark, working through, you know, various technical components. Um, and then also I had the opportunity to be able to bat as well, bat against the the bowlers. Yeah. So I was working on that with your input um, into my, into certain aspects of my batting as well. So again, I remember it like it was yesterday and, and the impact that I had, and it wasn't just honestly at training that the, the impact that I, that it had, but the impact that you had on me off the field, like off out of the training park as well. I remember we had a few um, drinks one night and the, the knowledge and the, um, the belief that you had in me, even at that age was, yeah, gosh, that I felt, you know, bulletproof and, and 10 foot tall because of that. Yeah. I mean, you pick your marks a bit and uh, <laughs> you know, I could see that you really sort of um, were massively, massively ready to learn and, and soaking everything up. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, that's because I've got another story later about a bloke totally opposite to that. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think, yeah, at, at that age, a great opportunity to sort of rub shoulders and, and learn. But I think one of the best things that at MRF, I, I'm sure you, I don't know if it was in whether we were using videotape in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Were. Yeah. First, yeah. first thing I bought in. Well, in the end, we, we actually refined that down to having computers and everything right next to the uh, the guys when they walk back so that you could you got feedback i'd pull one guy aside take him over they tee up ready to go show the action and in, in, uh, normal motion show it in slow motion i'd analyze it tell them this is what you should be now trying to do move this do that and they'd do it the next book so i mean it just went from videotape with you know, it was slow as hell. The naked eye to start with, videotape, mm. uh, and, and then this computer stuff is just, as you know now, is just amazing. But that mm. didn't, that started there. Incredible. That was, yeah. The impact that MRS Pace Foundation had because of what you put in place, yeah, it was, gosh, if you're fortunate enough to be able to go there, it was, yeah, absolutely priceless, priceless and it was an amazing opportunity. So, Thanks to to what you did, um, and we're definitely going to touch on on more of that um, as as we talk. But I just want to go um, back to one of the best pieces of footage I've ever watched, and it's it's on YouTube because I wasn't I wasn't old enough to see it at the time, or wasn't born at the time when it happened. But I, and I talked to Viv Richards about this in the one of the episodes um, of Lessons Learned with the Greats, and it's the four is about five balls of you bowling to him in the McDonald's Cup game at the Wacker. And it is some of the most amazing footage anyone can ever watch. The master, Viv Richards, against the batsman, against the master bowler, and there was you were able to bowl more than one or two bounces and over, and it is amazing. <laughs> I want to know, like, I talked to Viv about it. I want to get your perspective on, on that moment because that is just, for me, etched in my memory, and I just love watching it over and over again. Well, I haven't spoken to Viv about it, so I'd like to hear if you can recall <laughs> what he said, <laughs> um, and, then, and then I'll tell you exactly what was going through my head. <laughs> so he he knew what was – well, they just thought they were going to chase those runs down easy. Was it – he said, mm. was it 70 or 80 or something like that? Maybe, maybe 90? 76. 76, okay. <laughs> 76, yeah. I think so, it was 74, yeah. It's like, ah, oh, it'll be fine. No worries. And then yeah. he just – he came into <laughs> <Yeah>. bat <laughs> and just got peppered. He said one got like – yeah, got real big on me. <laughs> and then yeah, he said, I was spewing yeah. that I like got out, I got beaten by it like a good ball, but still I always, you know, felt that I could, you know, get through it. But just oh yeah, I want to get your perspective because I've got mine. But well, it is unbelievable yeah. to watch. Well, <laughs> it's 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 pretty right. Well, it's exactly as he said. But what happened was he thought they were gonna get it easily, and I think most mm. of our teammates thought. They were going to, and and Rod, in fact, who was the captain, Rod Mars, said, you know, we've basically stuffed this up. Let's get out there. A lot of ten thousand people have paid a lot of money to come and see us, and um, we've we've batted abysmally. Um, let's just give one hundred and twenty percent in the field, and and uh, let's go, basically. Um, and I said, and it's recorded that I said, bullshit, we can win this, uh, and I meant it. Mm. And I knew the only I knew we had two people to get out mm. um, to win it, and the first was Viv. If we didn't get him, there was thirty run, twenty thirty runs in the first couple of overs. So mm. he had to go, and Greg <laughs> Chapel had to go. And uh, and I I pulled it on myself that that was the two that I had to get. Um, you know, hopefully someone got one of them from the other end. But that was <laughs> that was my mindset. Mm. 
The only way to get Viv, if you pitch the ball up, um, you know, Viv's going to take chances. He's going to hit through the ball. Uh, I know that from having played against him many times. And mm. so the, the idea was we've got to rattle Viv somehow. <laughs> and uh, so I got warned for bowling, I think, my third bouncer. Um, <laughs> and then... And you said then, you slipped. Uh, you said you, the body language showed that you said the umpire slipped on the front line. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, sure he believed that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so then I think then there was the fourth might have been what happened. I don't know. Anyway, it ends up that I want the one that I ended up bowling him on. I'm sure he thought it was going to be – my eyes were rolling. I'm sure he thought it was going to be the bouncer <laughs> and it was a, a good length ball that sort of came back a little bit, probably yep. hit a rock. Um, and and then we had Viv uh, and then we'd set a trap for Greg and, and that worked perfectly. So <laughs> down just trying to get him to hook down leg side or mm-hmm. pull down leg side and um, and Rod went two or three paces across to the leg to where a wide leg slip would have been and just took it comfortably. <laughs> Greg, yeah. Greg didn't know, you know, so as soon as I bolted, he went down leg side. So, yeah, and then all of a sudden you could see you could see the momentum shift, you know, two yeah. of them down, um, you know, for none or very few. And, I mean, okay, you can often have them three for 20 or three for 15 and all of a sudden they make 200. But mm. um, the wicket still was bouncy and quick and so, you know. But, and, and, look, I didn't do it all. There was guys at the other end got wickets. If they hadn't, you know, it wouldn't have been a game it was. So mm. it was just one of those mind over, <laughs> my, you know, mind over matter sort of thing or just the mind, how strong the mind can be. Yep, everyone's got to get, on, get onto YouTube and watch that footage. It is, it's, it's incredible. The number 355 holds significant, special significance for Australian sports fans. For a long time, it was a world record for test wickets. You passed Lance Gibbs, and in your 70 tests, you took 355 wickets at just, at just 23 average. On the face of it, the statistics are astonishing, but it doesn't go anywhere near telling the whole story. It really is a story of courage, hard work, and sheer determination. From a bowling point of view, DK, and we're going to get into the technical aspects of bowling here, was there one technical component that really stands out to you that you worked on and developed, and once you ingrained that technical component, you knew if you bought that every time, you're going to be consistently at your best? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I, When I was very, very young, um, in the nets, all I used to do was just run in and bowl and try and get the batsman out every ball. You know, I think maybe a lot of us, that was what we did. Later, I just worked on, and I guess I held the ball for an outswinger most of the time. Later, I worked on an outswinger, you know, in club cricket and squads and stuff because the outswinger, if you got it in the right position, and I didn't that that often then because I was a tearaway. I mean, what you saw in the end was quite a refined action, but early on mm. I, was, I was a tearaway. And, um, you know, some... Uh, I mean, I didn't know where the ball was going some of the time. So all I tried to do was put the ball in a reasonable area, um, tr- but trying to bowl them out with an outswinger. So I wasn't just trying to hit off stump or anything like that. I, I was running into bowl to attack them with an outswinger. That was that was it early on. So if I grooved that, I, w- I was I was that was my stock standard ball. Um, yep. I didn't have a, didn't have a yorker, didn't have a slower ball, didn't have an in swinger. You know, basically, I ran in ball bloody fast, um, and I loved it when I saw the wicketkeeper standing halfway back from the from the, <laughs> to, to the to the boundary. So everyone who bowls quick loves that, of course. <laughs> but once you got that outswinger, you grooved that outswinger, you knew you were in the game every time. I, I knew I was I was a chance mm. bowling that because. I had a, I had captains who complemented that with good fields, you know, setting at least three, four slips most of the time, almost invariably, uh, and a gully, and that was the minimum. So, um, if I bowled quick and in that area, and it didn't matter where the length was, really, mm. because you know, it would, if I was reasonably, if I was bowling quick on the day, and I was in reasonable areas bowling out swingers with those slips complements, um, I, I was a chance. They would get some runs, but I was a chance. Yeah. It's amazing you say that because from even from my perspective, as soon as 
I started, I got, I went from, cause my body couldn't handle it being a tear away as much as I could to then mm. getting in a better position to be able to swing the ball. Bowling is the best batsman. If the ball was moving is a totally different ball game. Even the best batsman in the world, they found it challenging if they're able to move the ball and swing the ball. So once I was able yeah. to actually groove that, then it was a totally different ball game. Even if my pace was down a little bit, it's still, you could, you're, you were able to get the best batsman in trouble. Absolutely. And uh, the, the exciting thing as you move on from there, as I didn't have an inswinger, um, uh, and I really didn't have an off cut if it hit the seam and did something that's fine, but I tr- mm. used the angles, started using the angles of mm. the crease as well. Mm. So uh, I bought a bit around the wicket, but it wasn't in vogue then, um, mm. but, but certainly used, used different angles at the crease. And then later on in shield and test, that's where I learnt length, I learnt slower ball, learnt seamers, learnt to bowl an accurate bouncer, use a short run, um, uh, you know, particularly if the wicket was flat or we're trying to, to really starve the batsman to try and create something. Um, so you just bowled as tight as you can with a shortish run. Um, that, that worked for me and the team. And then put pressure on the batsman um, with with that, when nothing much is is happening, it's incredible that you that you mentioned that. A lot of people don't who li- who will be listening to this don't really understand those little fine details and adjustments that that you're making there. Yes, you had your stock your stock ball, the outswinger, but then you're talking about you know different angles that you're you're coming in at the, at the crease, and then your variations of speed, um, and and those different varieties. It's only subtle. But it's the reason why you were so good at what you did because it doesn't, the wickets, you know, a lot of the time are very flat. So you've got to find ways to be able to be really effective and as incredibly effective as, as you were. Well, there, you know, there's an old saying in the old, in the, in the old days, and that was if, you, if, you, um, if you're not, if you, that's right, if you're sitting in the pavilion, you can't make runs. <laughs> And of course, you say that about bowling. If you're not bowling, you're not going to get wickets. Yeah. So, and and that's why you had to be able to adapt. So I could bowl if the wicket had flattened out or it was starting to turn. I could bowl off a short run, um, mm. and and bowl cutters. Um, <laughs> I forgot to put cutters in there before. I, I mm. bowl leg cutters and and sort of smallish off cutters in the end, mm. but mainly a leg cutter. And the great thing about the leg cutter was that you. It ain't, as you throw your fingers down the side, it actually curves in towards the batsman. And if you get enough grip, then it either straightens or actually cuts. And mm. that's quite confusing for a batsman, uh, you know, particularly if you're doing it on a good length and you're putting pressure on, you've got your field set for it, you're not giving any runs away, uh, and it's a dead wicket or it's a spinning wicket, um, and you can you can work in uh, – in, uh, collaboration with a spinner at the other end mm. and uh, you're conserving energy you're, you're, you're not losing they're not uh, you're not bleeding runs um, he's attacking the other end you're either keeping it uh, quiet or uh, if if you're starting to get some some good work on the ball then you can be an attacking force from the other end so yeah variation is very important mm, for sure DK you played 70 tests and 198 first class um, matches as a as a frontline fast bowler. What were the lessons that you learnt on how to manage your body as well as it possible as well as you possibly could to be able to stay in the park and continue to bowl and be a frontline quick throughout your whole career? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. Look, in those days, early on, we had a lot of winters off, um, which you guys you know, didn't have, and and certainly they don't seem to have so much now. Mm-hmm. In that time, um, for two months, I did totally nothing. I mean, nothing. I didn't even go for a run. So I just let my body heal. And, you know, it had been, and I knew my body was really run down at the end of a season. So I, it was time for healing, time for relaxing, time for eating lots. I'd put, often put on two stone. I mean, it's a lot of weight. Um, and, and, you know, I played at about, more, I, I suppose, about 87. So I yep. would have put on, you know, a few kg, well, a lot of kgs. Now, then when I started training again, I didn't go in flat out. I took a week to two weeks of slowly building up and I measured my runs and, I, you know, just did, did sprints at half pace. Um, all the sort of, I didn't do gym, but we did a lot of body work. So, you know, okay. push-ups, sit-ups, you know, crunches, all that sort of stuff. All mm-hmm. that stuff was was gradually increased and I gave myself three months to be raring to go 
um, at the start of the season, and that included bowling the last two couple of weeks, the only only a couple of weeks because you were mainly indoors, as you know. Mm, yep. Certainly, uh, we were mainly indoors then, so it was raining a lot. As soon as I could get outside, even if there was no wickets available, I'd run in them off of you know build my run up and then and then get that try and get that rhythm going for the start of the season. I was always ready to go at the start of the season, um, and I think the build-up that I put in suited suited me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that that's basically was my, that was my my time of how to look after my body and how to how to build it up again for the and and you know toughen it up for the start of the season. So with your fitness regime, there you're talking about doing uh, like longer distance runs as well as sprints. So specifically towards you know, your bowling run up around about that and then your strength work was not in the gym like it is nowadays but but body weight so you weren't you were yeah you weren't loading up your body with extra weight because as as people do in the gym now but it was mainly those sort of three components yeah i mean the we we used a bit of a gym when we could but it was not so much the weight as it Mm. was as i say body stuff and uh, the 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 uh, gym balls and you know even exaggerating a bowling action with one of those big medicine ball things um, uh, pulley systems um, mm. you know all all those basic things but not really touching weights that I can recall we may have mm. done a couple of times um, but yeah it's it, <clears throat> it was really um, I guess that was the way it was then hardly anyone did did weights and if you mm. saw a a guy that was doing weights, you know, everyone would say, oh, he's, he's gone, he'll get too muscular. And in those <laughs> yeah. days, that's how they use weights. You know, they did do it to build themselves and look muscly. But, yeah. of course, that was all refined. Um, and, and in the time when I was coaching, it was all refined so that you, you actually got strong but not necessarily bulked up. It's a consistent thread through through my podcast and the, the uh, great bowlers that and, and cricketers in general I've talked to the com- one of the common threads is just the functional fitness that people do instead of like how things have shifted significantly in the last probably 10 or 15 years has gone at times away from the functional fitness. And it's yeah. either bowling, getting your body used to bowling. So you're bowling. So your body's used to that. But then if you're doing fitness work, which you need to, to be able to build up your engine, it is more cricket specific instead of doing things that, you know, a cricketer or a bowler or a batsman, actually, you know, they don't need to get the body used to doing that. Yeah, it's interesting it has, but I coach a few lads just, uh, you know, if, if, if I feel like doing them and, and, and I think they've got some promise. Hmm. Um, and I, uh, I teach them about, you know, 5K runs against the clock and up to, say, maybe 8, 9, 10Ks against the clock. Um hmm. And as you say, your, your sprint work would be sort of around about that sort of 30 metres um, generally and lots of them. Um, and, you know, they might say, and I, know I bowled a lot in the nets. I mean, I bowled a lot, at least an hour every every time I bowl, um, sometimes up to two hours and flat out. And the thing is that, the combination of both, see, you, you might do a net session and then the coach calls in um, a five or six K run, you know, with, a, you know, and, and it's, it's a competition with all the lads. So it was a combination of all of those things. And even now when I'm coaching these young lads, I tell them to get back to that sort of stuff and they, mm. they love it and, uh, and they feel better for it. So mm. it, as you said, and the secret is, and you were spot on, the engine, you've got to, you've got to get that engine right and you've got to keep it going. And, you know, what do you do when you run in and bowl fast? You run in. <laughs> you can't get that on a, on a bike. You can't get that <laughs> swimming. You can't get that, you know, with a lot of the cross stuff that's done. Mm. So, yeah, running is a major component, major component. It's exactly what um, I was talking to wasn't Matt Graham. It's exactly what he talked about was running cricket like getting endurance in and then bowling <laughs> like yeah a couple, yeah, one simple, two hours it? yeah <laughs> and getting your body used to doing what you want it to do yep, <laughs> yep. not rocket science exactly. <laughs> no, no. um dk from a coaching perspective look you are the sole reason why we had 20 years of some of the best fast bowlers in australia Brett Lee in his episode talked about the significant impact that you had on his career as you did on mine, as well as 
all these other great bowlers like Glenn McGrath, Andy Bickle, Michael Kasperwitz, Mitchell Johnson, and Pat Cummins. And this is just to name a few. Dicky, was there a, one major situation as a coach that stands out to you that you learned from when you didn't get the desired result that you're looking for? <laughs> the next time that situation arose, you went in a different direction because you knew it wasn't going to have the impact um, because of the previous situation. No, I never wavered um, from my belief um, <laughs> yeah. that those thing, all those things we talked about were so important. Mm-hmm. Um, you've, you've got to get the person to believe that. Now, we had one young lad, 18-year-old, I reckon he was, from maybe 19, from England, just had his first season of playing um, first-class cricket. Uh, he'd got 45 wickets at, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know. Anyway. So I do a bit of research. Anyway, so the, the, uh, the young lad's in the nets and I'm trying to show him this and try and show him that and he's sort of not even nodding. He's just sort of almost looking straight through me. Um, and this is the first day and so I sort of thought, well, you know, just let him settle down. He's probably jet lagged, you know, whatever. Um, and so the next day I start talking to him again. I said, you look, why don't you try this and I reckon, you know, you're falling over because of this. Just if, you know, Just a few different things that, um, you know, would have helped him. He ignored me. So at the end of the that day, I invited the Poms in for a drink in the hotel, all the Poms that were there. And uh, I, anyway, I finally, as you know, I, I often sort of sit, you know, with a couple and I'll work my way around to have a chat to folks that I think I need to. So I got to him and I said, listen, mate, I said, uh, You've come over here, you're an 18, 19-year-old kid, you've come over here to learn. I don't like your attitude. Um, I, I want to know what's wrong. Is there something wrong with me um, or do you not like the way I coach or you know, what is it, mate? He said, well, I got 45 wickets at uh, 23, 24.4 in my first year as an 18-year-old or whatever it was um, in first-class cricket. He said... Why should I listen to what you've got to say? I said, he said, if you know, I've I've got that many wickets um, first year. I think I'm doing pretty well. Why do you think I should change? I said, well, mate, you know, if you, that if you think that you're going really well at that, if you do the things that I tell you to do and hone them, mm. you'll get 85 wickets at 17 or 18 next year. It's up to you. Goodbye. Anyway, he never changed and he, I never heard his name ever after about another year. That was it, gone. So the kid had talent and yeah. I'm not saying that I was right totally, but I know that he, he was wrong in his, mm. in, in his attitude. Yeah. So they've got to buy into it. Righto? That's what I'm saying. You know, you, yeah. you've got the guys have got to uh, buy into it and you've got to make sense as a coach for them to buy into it. There's no use just saying do that. You've got to explain to them, as you know, what I do is I explain what I'm trying to get them to do and I, 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 I tell them the reasons for it, I show them how it will help them um, and then in the end, if they buy in, I become superfluous as a coach. They actually become, they become the coach because they understand the technique I'm trying to show them and teach them and so that's very important. There's no use just saying as a coach, and I've heard it many times, you're falling over, stand up straight. <laughs> um, or your left leg's going too far across, just plant it straight down in front. I mean, yep. there is something mechanically going wrong for them to do that. So you've mm-hmm. got to look back right through the whole action, including the run-up and the angle of the run-up, the whole thing, and then decide where it goes wrong. And if you can show them that and they buy in, you're three-quarters of the way there. Then the hard works. Yeah. <laughs> then they've got. Then, then, then the hard work starts for them. Yeah. Did you did you always have that as a as a coach when you first started out? You always had that understanding of the mechanics, but then also how to be able to communicate that with with people because that's an that's an incredible skill, and a lot of people, majority of people, actually don't have that. The combination of understanding deep down of the mechanics, but then also how to communicate that so people understand it. Well, communicate it and back it up with having done it. I think that sort yeah. of helps, you know, that, that uh, they'll listen to you. No, I didn't. No, I learned all of it. Um, okay. I, I was very basic. Um, 
along the way. In fact, uh, I wrote a, a book in 1975 or something, so I was only 25, 26 years of age. And uh, it really, the book was pretty, pretty basic. It covered a lot, but it, it, it was the old-fashioned side-on, um, you know, all that sort of stuff that now has, has really uh, turned out to be not, not necessarily the right, right way to go. Um, and I, I learned it from a lot of listening to a lot of orthopods, physios, uh, biomechanists, um, but taking the best of, of it, not listening to all of it because yeah. sometimes they they think they, you know, they know how to teach guys to bowl fast. Well, they don't, you know, and, and I don't know I don't know anything about physiotherapy, but I, I can gr- glean bits of that and, and, and bits from the doctors, the orthopods and, um, and biomechanists and put it all together, you know. Yeah, well, thank you that you did that because <laughs> you had such an, yeah. a huge impact on, as I said, 20 years of fast bowlers in Australia, which is, let, let alone people from outside of the world, like the other parts of the world. <laughs> yeah, but it was exciting for me to really um, be able to to uh, learn it and, and put it into action and, and to help. Seeing these guys improve is one of the best things that you can ever, well, as a human being, but as a coach, it's, it's one of the best things that, can, can ever happen to you. You know, I got as much fun out of that um, as um, an enjoyment out of that and satisfaction as I did playing the game. It's incredible, mate. Thank you. Because a lot of people, well, you know what, but a lot of people, well, not a lot, some people aren't built that way that they're willing to really, everything that they've learned and put together and then they can articulate and that help you know, people like you have. So, um, yeah, we're all, we're all incredibly grateful, mate. Very enjoyable. Yeah. To be a fast bowler, Bowling against the best batsman in the world on very flat wickets at times, you need to be very mentally tough. From a mental skills point of view, DK, were you always built a certain way or did you have to develop these mental skills to be able to bring your best performance consistently? Um, I think I was very lucky. Mum and Dad were, you know, both hard workers, mentally tough, um, both played sport. Um, uh, my grandfather was a boxing coach, so you know. Okay. I think there's a few genes there that sort of, um, you know, probably helped me with mental. T- and he was, he was. My grandfather was so insistent about me running, you know, even at the age of 14, 15, playing underage cricket. You know, there was a catch cry in the paper one time where someone quoted him as saying, "Run, Dennis, run!" You know, and that was. He believed that, like we just talked about the engine, and uh, you know, he said that particularly as a boxer, you think about it, you know, their engine's got to be amazingly strong and so they've got to do lots of running, skipping, running, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, mental toughness was, I think, was always there. I was never Mm. confident early on, never confident early on. Um, I was a very shy young kid. I was very naive. But I learned to, to erase all of those later on. How, how did you learn that? Just from experience or did you have someone like work with you through that? Hard school of knocks. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, experience, mentors, you know, mm-hmm. the likes of John Inverarity, for example, or mm-hmm. Ian Chappell, um, Marshy, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll miss some. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think, I think it, yeah, I think you, you learn a, long, a lot along the way. And if you are prepared to be um, – able to sort of take it in and and sometimes it means you've you know you've really got to be a bit humble uh then you know you'll learn you'll learn and and you yeah you'll adapt and you'll be you'll you'll those things will come quite naturally in the end in the end was there a moment where it really clicked where you're like once you got it and you found that mental space you needed to then you're like i'm just gonna that's the mindset that's a space that i need to be in to be able to continue to, to be at my best? And what did that look like? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Um, my first test, um, and I bowled the first day, I think, and got none for or one for uh, 70 or something. And I thought, oh, this is it. I was about the seventh or eighth fast bowler tried that season against them. So okay. you know, I was a real overnight success. Um, <laughs> but I was only young. Um, and the thing is that, in the second innings, I came out and the outswinger worked beautifully and I, t- I ended up taking five for 80 or something. And though I didn't, it's almost like the, the 
attitude of a few of the senior players almost changed overnight and and it seemed to me that maybe I was a little bit accepted here and and I felt a little not comfortable but I felt gee I can do okay you know I got five for against England like England um, <laughs> and so that confidence I got from that and the acceptance um, I think was a turning point no doubt about that um, I didn't feel confident I was a part of the team but I f- mm-hmm. felt confident I'd t- I I could get if I can get five wickets against England, uh, and I wasn't regularly getting five wickets in club cricket or shield cricket, <laughs> yeah. then I must have a chance here. Amazing, and that was the moment where it just you knew you had what it took, yeah, to be able to compete, compete, and do really well at that level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, I think that was the first time I realised that um, you know I, I was probably you know I was probably in in this. Um, it, well, I was probably in the mix now to, to go forward. Mm. DK, in World Series seemed like there was a, that was a time where the media coverage started to, to crank up a bit. From what you know now, would you have approached the media in a different way to when you were playing? Oh, today you have to. Um, today is very different. Uh, all the social media, um, a lot of the papers are just looking for anything that may uh, create a headline, and it's not necessarily cricket. Um, in our day, the media, um, you know, I got on well with 98% of the media, so I'm talking about media all over the world. I, yeah. I really got on well with them. Uh, you could be open with them, and, and they uh, accepted that, and, and, and they, um, they gave them confidence that you were giving them the right stuff. You know, you weren't trying to hide things. There was no cliches. It, it was, and then they'd say to you. Some of them would say to you afterwards, "Oh, look, you said that. What do you think?" Um, shit, no, maybe not. Okay. And so that was the sort of relationship you had. They, they, um, I didn't drink much at all in those days. I've certainly made up for it. But um, the, they would also have a few beers with you afterwards. You know, in, in the bar at the hotel. Um, yeah. So you know, it was it was a it was a nice relationship generally. And you only cop one every now and again that would sort of, you know, uh, you you thought, oh, I don't trust him, um, and and rightly so too, by the way. Um, and but they were they were quickly sorted out. Yeah. So it's different. It's very different. I'd be careful now, <laughs> you know, with the press. I'd be very, and that's unfortunate for the people wanting to read things out there uh, or see things. Was this even in the UK as well? Was because there, there would have been like UK, there would have been tabloids around at that time, or or not not so much. Yeah, there were tabloids, but um, they were they were pretty pretty good. Um, okay, very very good. Um, we generally only came across the, the you know the spreadsheets, uh, the, the the more traditional ones. I I think that I noticed um, they were no 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 they were there was cricket. They were just sort of interested in you know how did you go today, um, you know what, <laughs> yeah. what, what you know how we how how will you go tomorrow. Um, Pretty mundane stuff. Um, yeah. It was all, yeah, it was, it was all very different. That sounds good. <laughs> sounds yeah, like a pretty good yeah, setup. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, DK, in and around your your life during during cricket, was there was there techniques and things that you used to be able to get away from cricket? Were there techniques you used to be able to get the best out of yourself and then have, find ways to be able to actually just relax and have downtime? Well, I believed in um, just leading as much as you could a normal life. Obviously, we had jobs. Um, everyone had a job, certainly before World Series cricket. Um, you, we all relaxed and, and went out, you know, with our friends and, and everything and, and new friends. So that, that was important. Um, I, I think you, you know, for example, um, I can remember in Perth one time, the back, we had a massive quarter acre and the backyard uh, three quarters of it was lawn or weeds or lawn and it needed to be done and and so you know it took me three quarters of an hour and um, I did it that morning before I went and bowled at the whacker so <laughs> so so just do normal things don't wrap yourself mm. up in cotton more um, and 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 relax by living a normal as normal a life as you can outside of the game get away from the game as much as you can because now in the the, the hyper professional era that it is now it's it's like if you aren't eat sleeping breathing cricket 
like 24 seven, it's like you don't, it's like you don't care enough. Um, now with all the, you know, the whole systems and big brother that's around looking over you the, the whole time, it seems like if you don't have things away from cricket that pulls you away so you can have downtime that, that you actually don't care, but it's actually super important to be able to you know, mentally rest and be able to get away. So then when you come back into the environment, you're charged and ready to go. But is that something Absolutely. you just naturally, you just naturally did because it's, you knew that's what worked for you? Yeah, I, I knew it worked for me. You know, everyone was different. A lot of people like to um, live and breathe the game, um, even once the you know the game. Well, when the game wasn't on, but um, I guess in the era that we were in, we all had jobs, as I said, basically. Mm. So you, there was just a, a lot of normality there. <laughs> um, I, I uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a totally different era, but I think if they can get away some way or have other things to do um, that takes them away, even if for, for a couple of hours, um, I think that's very important. Yeah. I know that you played in near it where the riches certainly were nothing like they are you know, t- today, for example, but looking back now across, across your life would from an investment point of view, and this is moving away from cricket from an investment point of view, would you have done anything differently? Um, to what you have over your over your life, um, looking back on the good things and the not so good things that um, that you invested in. Okay, um, I'll try and quickly go through it. Um, Helen and I were quite savvy when it came to money because we didn't have much, um, mm-hmm. and so we were. It was a frugal lifestyle, mm-hmm. and then any excess that we would get. You know, and I started to get a couple of small ads. You know, you might, might get a couple of grand or something. Um, and and we would we would keep that money in a bank. And then when we got enough to put down ten percent on a shitty old place in the middle of you know like a bad suburb, um, we'd put it down and and borrow it over twenty five years, which you did those times, and pay interest and principal. And then you'd go in and you uh, and Helen and I would go in on our you know ourselves and we'd go and rip the, the carpet out, uh, get down the floorboards, we'd paint, we'd strip down the walls, paint it all out, just you know basic stuff um, so that it was livable, put a tenant in, and then try and forget about it. Uh, and then we just kept doing that as much as we could all the way through. So that that was um, how we we sort of started. Yeah. Um, once the money got better um, and we would then sort of say anything near water, anything near water. Okay. So by the shittiest place, um, whatever, anywhere near near water, so sea, river, lake, whatever, anything near water, that, that was our, our way. I mean, it's, it's not smart. It's, it's something that we probably learnt somewhere, but um, uh, but that was the way we did it. Um, the other flip side, um, partnerships avoid them like the plague. Uh, <laughs> that's what that's what we've learnt. Okay, yeah. there's some great partnerships, mm. but just be care- just be careful. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're not there enough nowadays. You're not mm. there enough um, to be watching over. You're not there enough to be involved. You're not there enough to know enough about the, the game. Um, and that's about all I'll say about it. But <laughs> so partnerships, you're talking, about, you're talking about business business partnerships. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 Avoid them. You know, unless you're there, unless they're blood blood relations. Mm. Um, you know, I, I just uh, anyway. That's that's what that's my advice. It's pretty basic, really. Yeah. So businesses businesses that you invested in over over your over your life so far were they um the lessons that you learned it was it was primarily if i'm going to do something i'm going to do it myself on things that i know inside out and not um, because i'm not around enough to be able to really understand if i have another partner or if i have another yeah business partner i don't know enough about what's going on and there's more chance of them actually doing something that they which takes the piss out of the actual you know what my investment that i've put in well yeah, let's just put it this way: that um, we went into a lot of partnerships, and uh, and and you know we, but they they were, they weren't the best investments ever. Okay. Um, in fact, in fact, you know you you just yeah, I 
I think you've gotten, you know, you can, you're not there enough. That's what I'm saying. And so yeah. you've just got, you just to be careful. Very, very, and they can be your best, you know, best mates, but you know, just be careful. So just, I just want to dig in this a little bit more because just a little bit, because I know there's a lot of people out there and, I'm, and this is even current cricketers and even um, professional athletes in a way, there's always people out there who are trying to, you know, get, throw a business opportunity at, at someone and they know that they're not around enough. If you were to set a criteria of what you would look at for going into an investment, an investment into a partnership, what would it look like now? Part, or would it just be just make sure that it's it's actually like your your blood or your family because you know that you, you you trust what they're going to do. Well, you know, maybe um, you know it's a bit it's a bit hard, but um, you've you know you're a professional cricket. You don't understand a lot of the other stuff. You don't you know you haven't had enough. Um, you haven't you haven't had the experience in business, um, and so. Um, yeah, um, you're not there day to day. Um, so who's going to look after your interests really? Um, you know, um, sometimes jealousy can come in because uh, you're away, you're getting this glam, it seems glamorous, um, you're getting all the attention and the people, you can get jealousy and you can, you can get people sort of um, that, that it can be unscrupulous, put it that way. Um, so just... I don't know. I've got no advice because I, you know, yeah. I, I just don't know what the answer is really. Um, yeah. You know, I, brick and mortar, I guess it's, mm. it's slow, it's, it's long, long term, but gee, I tell you what, not, to, not too many uh, houses that, and developments we did, uh, did they get jealous of what, what, what we were doing <laughs> or, or, our, or our name or, or what here. So anyway. And two things that you touched on as well is one was being frugal and living a frugal life and enough Mm. to then, to then actually invest in property. And that's the one thing that, you know, the the current, the current cricketers and current athletes, a lot of the time it's one thing that it's more a token effort to be able to go. Because what you said, they're bricks and mortar. That's like one of the things that it stands the test of time, no matter, no matter what is if you invest in property and their evolution and how property can grow, as long as you buy decently, um, and how important that is, that's very, very wise from, you know, from a, from a young age, like, like you would have to be able to, to go into that and not get caught up in this lavish lifestyle and, um, yeah, and, and not invest very wisely. Again, was that something more so that your wife like helped, um, educate you around or you, you guys were just that, that was your mentality from that, from that time? Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, um, Helen's very, very smart. She's now got um, a business degree and, and majors, or um, I think it's major in accounting or whatever it is. Anyway, so she's got all that. She went back to school after, you know, later when the kids were late in school, late their later years in school, and went back and uh, and got all that. I had a, I did, I worked in the bank for seven or eight years. I went to night school to do, did accounting for a couple of years, um, and and so. There's a little bit of um, that that sort of background there is in finance, um, and certainly Helen has been amazing with all that later on. And and she, that was her life work, uh, you know. Once the kids were sort of uh, towards the end of school and going, and and she just took over all the running um, of the office. And uh, you know, so I think if you can if you can get Someone trustworthy and someone you you know obviously your wife's going to be the best. But if you've got um, a friend who is, or if you've got um, um, some other other rally who is, um, you know you still I, th- I think you're, you're you're a long way towards um, getting there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We all go through ups and downs in life and throughout our life, and you certainly had your fair share. So, do you have a, a mantra or a saying that you that you use to be able to to bounce back from you know setbacks and challenges that life always throws at you? Ah, good point. Well, I, I suppose it might go back to my belief that you know a, a game could is never lost. A, a game, <laughs> you know, you can always win a game. Maybe you know, even if it's the flat. Wicked and Adelaide or Melbourne, and the, you know, you're there, um, you know, they're cruising along. Um, it, 
you know, two or three for 270 chasing, you know, 350 or whatever it is, you know, there's always a chance, um, even though it, does, it seems unlikely. But extrapolate that further out and, and say if there's um, an over to go and I'm bowling and there's four wickets to get to go, I still believed you could you could win that. And uh, not that you, 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 you did that much, but occasionally it would happen. And um, and I think if you've got that belief, even in, in the direst of straits, you know, where it's almost, in, well, it almost seems impossible, if you still genuinely believe it, I think that gives you a chance. And I, I think that that's probably helped me in life too. And again, was that something that you was inbuilt in you? Because that's because yeah, that's that's what obviously made you great and and got the best out of yourself. But was that because of your your parents and your upbringing that really made you believe that? Because a lot of people you know don't have that mentality. Yeah, if you played me uh, played against me um, Monopoly or Tiddlywinks or Marbles <laughs> or I'll throw a few of those things, things in there, you. You'd probably find out very quickly um, <laughs> that I'm fairly competitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know whether it was inbuilt. I think it yeah. was. I think it, it probably came from my parents. Um, I can remember one time. It's probably not a good story to tell now, but um, Dad, I played. A, Dad played football. He was a very good amateur footballer, and then he yeah. asked me to play a game when he. He retired and he got asked to play for the work, the people he worked for. And he said, oh, yeah, I thought, you know, if my son can play, that'd be good. And I played a bit of footy and yeah. uh, that's Australian rules. Anyway, yeah. um, so so I uh, <clears throat> obviously had a name by then and, and uh, you know, uh, we were playing against guys called Gardeners. I don't know why I remember it, but Gardeners Bodybuilders. And I thought bodybuilders were the truck people, you know, because Dad worked with trucks. And yeah. I thought the bodybuilders are those people that would build the backs of trucks. Anyway, these blokes came out, honestly. honestly, They'd obviously um, spent most of their life in the gym. And, uh, well, did they, did they go for it? Anyway, there was one particular instance and uh, a bloke, I was ruck rover or something, and, and a bloke came in from the side and just decked me with a fist straight to the head and I'm flat out on the ground and my dad was playing full back and I I was not out but I was dazed and I'm sort of sitting up a bit and next thing I see is is this bloke coming straight past me and it's just gone straight for this other bloke and decked him (laughs) and the bloke Bloke had muscles on muscles, but Dad was pretty pretty big too. Yeah. Um, and that was the end. That was the end of it. No, no more problems. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's uh, there's a bit of determination there somewhere. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how. And this is the interesting thing about whether it's you know the people that I played with and and you know the great the great players and the great cricketers that I've ever been around. And it comes down to that that desire to to win, not at all costs. Not at all costs, as in like pushing the line and yeah, you know, and cheating, but it's actually pushing the limit of what you can do to be able to, to be able to win. Um, and it's interesting to know, like sometimes it's the influence. Well, a lot of the times, influence of your environment growing up, um, but then it's understanding you know, how to be able to bring that to be able to be at your best consistently, like what you've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And and also, I think. Uh, school um, also influences you a lot, um, and it certainly did in my case, where I had very good teachers, and I had um, one of the teachers was a coach um, in cricket and football. He's very, very good football coach. Not that good at cricket, but um, he was a country lad, and he 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 was terrific, and and he was you know he got the best out of us, and he he got us you know really a good unit, but determined and hard, and uh, that was at primary school. Oh, right. So um, yeah, I remember. I still remember that Ken Waters. What a what a, a legend. Um, mm. But you know his attitude and and his determination and and they're all the sort of things I guess that I ended up with too. So I can't discount him as being a major influence along the way. DK, this is a final question. And I really do I sincerely do appreciate your time and um, you being so open. You have met and been around some of the most successful people in the world. Who has inspired you the most and why? Quite simply, Cassius Clay. And I'll call him Cassius Clay because mm-hmm. I know he's now Muhammad Ali, but I knew mm-hmm. him as Cassius Clay. <laughs> Cassius because I thought he was 
unbeatable. I I watched. I saw the way he trained. Um, obviously, my grandfather being a boxing coach, you know, we we loved watching him together. Um, he was cheeky, confident, um, but people loved him. Um, I mean, you know, I, I suppose, you know, obviously my grandfather, um, Frank Pike, uh, Ian Chappell, Marshy, uh, Redders, all these guys along the way were just great mentors and influences. Um, mm-hmm. But Cassius Clay was sort of the one that readily comes to mind. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? No, no, I didn't. Um, you had a chance. Uh, would have loved, would have loved to have, but uh, no. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he was probably, he was, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of other uh, heroes and influences, but he was sort of the one that, you know, I, I guess, you know, you almost wanted to be, <laughs> but knew you never could be. <laughs> Yeah, well, you came, gosh, you did as well as you possibly can <laughs> as you could to be able to, you know, live a live a life that, you know, people only really ever dream of. So, gosh. It was a good journey. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. DK, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on this episode of, of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You have lived a life that most people only ever dream of. And now we've all had an opportunity to be able to hear these amazing insights that we all can learn from for the future. Thank you so much for sharing these incredible experiences with us. And we are all that much richer for digging deeper into the mind of one of the greatest fast bowlers the world has ever seen. Thank you, mate. Thanks, Wado. It's an absolute pleasure. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.